Okay. Good evening, everyone. This week's Parsha is Parshas Nitzavim Vayelach. It's a double Parsha. In fact, um, I don't want to get anyone scared, but this is the last Parsha, the last week of the year. So next week, we don't even have a Parsha. So I was thinking about not saying Parsha class, because what can I talk about? It's not a Parsha. But I'm sure we could find plenty on Rosh Hashanah to talk about. So hopefully we will we will do that, but it's really the last. Uh, this is the the final parsha of the year, so you can look back and think about all the things we talked about this year, all the different thing themes that we covered. Perhaps, hopefully, we've grown a little bit um, in the past year, and thank Hashem for 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 all the kindness that He's given us in the past year. There's a famous thought in Torah, Torah thought that the final week of the year can be used as a tool to, to, to atone for the entire year. And every day of the week can be used to atone if we do a proper job the, the, that day of the week of the previous year. So it's not the final Wednesday, but next week is going to be the final Wednesday, but Starting this Shabbos, it will be the, the the last Shabbos of the year. So if we can think about how we uh, approach the holy day of Shabbos, uh, maybe to try to do a little bit more, whatever we're holding in life, whether it's holding by making Kiddush, lighting candles, taking a little step forward in the observance of Shabbos, or um, maybe making the Shabbos experience more meaningful, bringing a Torah thought to the Shabbos table, whatever level we're holding, to take a little bit to bring the Shabbos a little more spiritual, to have a little more spirituality in our Shabbos. That would be the final Shabbos of the year. Okay, so let's talk about the Parsha a little bit. Parshas Nitzavim, Parsha V'yech. These are two Parshas that in size are the two shortest Parshas, the two smallest Parshas in the Torah. This year we combined them because we are losing a week because this coming week is going to be Rosh Hashanah. We don't lean a parsha, so we put them together. So now we have the two parshas of Nitzav and Mayelach. These are all together between the two of them. We have 70 verses, 70 psukim. 70 psukim, even together, is considered a shorter parsha, let alone the 30 and the 40, that each one of them are separately. But there's a very interesting, um, a very interesting uh, parsha, a very interesting part of the Torah, um, right over here on Rabbi Shishi, right by the sixth of the other bottom, the last word actually, on page 1090, page 1091. And it goes to the next couple of verses on page 1092, 1093. I want to focus the first part of our class on these verses. It starts off as follows. It happens to be a nice, very, very famous, popular Orthodox song that's uh, composed with these words. If anyone, I don't know if anyone's familiar with it. It's Ki HaMitzvah Zos for this mitzvah, this commandment. Asher Anochi Mitzvah It's on the top of 1092 now, 1093, that I have commanded you today. Lo Neflesi Memcha 
is not hidden from you. The loy rochaykahi, and it's not far away. Lo bashamayimhi, this mitzvah is not in the heavens. Leimar, so that you can say miyala lanu bashamayimah. Who's going to travel up to the heavens to vihikachaha lanu to bring this mitzvah back to us? The yashmi inu oisavenas, and to tell us what to do. Lo meiva hayamu. This mitzvah is not all the way across the sea. Lamar, we can say, who's going to travel the seas for us? Rather, it's very, very close. So there's a disagreement among the commentaries, the main, main commentaries in the Chumash, the Rashi and the Ramban. Rashi explains this to mean, we're referring to the mitzvah of Learning Torah, studying Torah. The mitzvah that we are doing currently right now, studying Torah. That's the mitzvah that the, the, that the Pasuk is talking about. The simple definitions of the words are, yes, indeed, it is vast, and it is the most complete subject in the world. It is so vast and so um, beyond comprehension that we will never, ever, ever grasp completely even the holiest, holiest men in the world can never have a complete understanding of the Torah. Yet, each one of us, as simple, simple, simple people, whoever we're holding, we all have a portion of the Torah. We all have a connection to the Torah. Even if it's just a little bit of olive base, we have a clear, um, complete connection to some portion of the Torah. Some part of the Torah we have a connection to. And as as a as an example or as a uh, a a, a marshal to bring out this point, um, we'll use the the chumash as our example. This chumash, maybe not necessarily this exact uh, chumash. I'm not uh, trying to advertise for scroll, but the chumash that we all use. If you would think about all the different professionals out there, a doctor, a lawyer, maybe a mathematician, or whatever it may be. So I'm just going to use math as an example, just the easiest example for me. A, 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 a first grader, indeed, they're learning math. And a fifth grader also is learning math. And an eighth grader learns math. And when you go to a college, university, you're also studying math. Yet, a first grader is going to have one textbook. And you will never catch a university professor using the same textbook as a first grader. It just won't happen. It's completely different information. There's nothing in common. The the first grader has has one plus one equals two, has two plus two equals four. The fifth grader has seven hundred and thirty-three times fifty-six, whatever the if I mess up the grades, Leslie, you could correct me what fourth grade's holding. Fourth grade, third grade, whatever grade you're still you're holding in. And as as you get third third grade, third grade. So as you get as you get older and older, the, the whole it's it's a different it's a different it's a different study. You're not studying the same thing. Yet the Torah we find it's a little bit different. Yes, a, a great scholar, a great rabbi, maybe may have more clarity, more understanding, more depth, more vast knowledge than 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 me and you. Yet. We're all studying from the same book. My rabbi, when he opens up a chumash on Friday, on Shabbos morning, he's learning Torah. 
he's working he's working his brains out to figure out the words. What do those words mean? And when I open up the Chumash on Shabbos morning, what do you think I'm doing? The same thing, the same words. I have the Torah on my level, you have the Torah on your level, and the greatest rabbis of the generation have the Torah on their levels. And you go back 500 years, when you go back 800 years, you look at Rashi, what was Rashi doing? Rashi, who his infinite amount of wisdom you cannot even comprehend, same verses, the same Chumash, the same Torah. We have different levels of understanding, but we're all focused on the same book, on the same Torah. Everything is the same. The Torah that we have can be understood on so many different levels, but it's all the same Torah, same understanding, the same words, the same exact Torah. That's what it means, at least one of the, the ideas that we can take out of these verses, that it's it's close. It's not far away. It, it may also be far away. It may also be parts of the Torah that are beyond our grasp. But it's right here next to us. We can all have a portion in on our, our on our level. That is the the first uh, thought I want to bring out from these this um, chain of verses. The next thought um, goes back to the the title of the class. So, can anyone figure out? how we can get prove God from a blender. Can a blender get us proof to God? I went and read a, a, a very interesting article. It was actually, actually, it was a book. This book was written. I don't know why this was the, the title of the book, but apparently this is how it was in 2008, 2009. That, those, that era when there was a big crash. So a lot of people were out of jobs. It was very hard to get a job. And for some reason, Google, when they when they, uh, when they they interviewed people, they had a very weird method of interviewing people. They didn't just interview people regularly, just ask them interviews. They asked them very weird questions to see how they would, on the fly, how they would problem solve. One of the questions they asked was, if you were a miniature size, and you got stuck in a blender and you had a minute to try to get yourself out. Um, how would you get out of the blender? And if you got a good answer, you got yourself a job on Google. I don't know why that was the, 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 the question, but if you can figure out how to get out of a blender within a minute, then you may be able to work for Google. But it still doesn't prove how God exists. So, Steve, what's up? I think you posed this last year, but I don't remember the answer. Could you have? <laughs> see, if I did, that was really, really smart of me. I can test <laughs> everyone to see. I don't think I'm that. I don't, you're giving me too much credit, Steve. I defer to uh, Joel. Joel, what do you have to say? No one? Okay. That's why I get paid. I will share the answer with you. Okay. Once upon a time, Approximately, I would say, 60 years ago, there lived a very, very wise and pious man. And he was a, one of the leaders of the Jewish people in the land of Israel. Israel. And his name was Rabbi Eliyahu Lapian. And Eliyahu Lapian was one of the great, great leaders of the Musr movement. Um, prolific speaker, prolific author, writer. He, he was a, a very well-renowned um, rabbi. And one day, he comes into yeshiva 
with a big box. He puts it on the desk. And he says, what's in the box? Someone, what's in the box? He opened the box up. And he pulls out a blender. And if you're wondering why in the picture on the email, I found a vintage blender is because I thought that probably looked similar to the blender that he had in the 60s. So that's why I chose an old vintage blender. Uh, yeah, I, I probably got the, the blender. I probably looked around 1960s version. Okay, so he puts this big blender on the table. And he says, from here we see that God exists. And from here we see that God gave us the Torah. We have to follow the Torah. And the students in the yeshiva looked just about the same as all you guys look. What in the world is this rabbi talking about? So he says, I'll tell you what happened. I come home today in the morning and my wife is crying. She's so sad. Why are you so sad? Says a, a, a relative or a friend brought us a present from America. America. Eretz Yisrael in the 60s. America was like, was like an Aden. You get stuff there. Well, and, and this person brought this a gift, a gift to. And I open it up and I take out this funny looking thing with buttons on it. And I don't know what to do with it. I can't do anything. I can't turn it on. I, it's not doing anything. And I, I, I don't know what to do. It hurts me. And she's so sad. My my friend brought me a gift and and it, it and. It's 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 worthless. It's useless. So Rabbi Elulapian looks at his wife, looks at this machine, studies it a little bit. It's nice. It's polished uh, metal. Nice buttons. This big glass thing on top of it. A blade. He says, "A machine that came from America looks so nice. Looks so." Well done, well created. Everything looks so neat and beautiful and perfect. There must be some instructions. I can't believe that. So he asks his wife, maybe it came with some papers or something that you threw in the garbage? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she goes to the garbage, she pulls out some papers, and she finds that there's a, there's a packet, a booklet. But the problem is the book is written in English, and they don't speak English. They speak Hebrew, they speak Yiddish, no English. What are they going to do? So they find, they go down the block, they find a neighbor who speaks English, and they come home, they read the instructions, and they tell us, oh, you have to put in the plug first, whatever, I'm making that up, that part of the story I made up. You have to put in the plug first, and this button goes a little slower, and this one's a little faster, and it explains exactly what the instructions are. This blade, you can make smoothies, and take out this blade, you put this blade in, you can make a potato kugel, you put this in, all these different exciting things you can do with this machine. And all of a sudden, Mrs. Lapian, Rabbits and Lapian, is thrilled and she's ecstatic. She's so excited. And Rabbi Lapian is even more excited because now he has a lesson to teach his students. So he brings the blender to Yeshiva and he says, this is the proof that the Torah is from Shemayim. Which is why. He says, there's no... If you have something like a blender that was a machine that was built for a purpose, people don't build things 
for no reason. There must be a purpose. Someone designed it. Someone developed it. There's a reason why this blender looks the way it looks. And there's a motor here and there's a blade here and there's buttons here. And there's a funny looking wire that plugs into the wall. There's a reason behind all this. It wasn't put together as a piece of art to hang up in a museum. This is something that was, I mean, even that technically has has a lot of thought processes that, that are put into place exactly where art, how, how people develop art. Um, you may have to be a very uh, intelligent um, artistic uh, person to be able to understand it, but everything has a purpose, even in art. But when it comes to the blender, everything has a, has a clear purpose. And there must be some instructions somewhere. And you open up the instructions, and all of a sudden you see that there is mahalach. There is a, 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 there is a rhyme and reason why this button is here and that button's there. Because you push this button, all of a sudden it turns on. And the blade is, spins this way. And you take this blade and you put that blade and it spins that way and it does this and it does that. And everything has a very specific purpose and what it's doing. So I heard this, this thought with a little bit of an extra twist which really ties it all together. So we have an example in our story of a blender. And the blender costs whatever it costs. Today's day and age costs, let's say, $200, $300 for a blender. Let's say you got a gift. And the gift was a dollar store gift. Someone bought you something from the dollar store. And you couldn't figure out how to use it. How much time would you spend to try to figure out how to use it before you go and put it off to the side or maybe even throw it in the garbage? I don't know, spend at least a little bit. Now, what happens if it wasn't a dollar store toy? Rather, it was uh, something that was worth $100. You would say, my friend spent $100 on this. There must, he doesn't flush his money down the toilet. There must be something. And at a certain point, you're not going to just throw it away. You're going to figure out, or maybe you could put it away for a minute. Maybe you'll get back to tomorrow. You'll try to figure out how it works. You'll try to figure out the instructions. And what happens if this gift that someone gave you was worth $1,000 or $10,000. What happens if a person gets an inheritance from a parent or a grandparent? And in the inheritance, instead of giving cash or money, there's a riddle. Someone is trying to play a trick on you, grandparent or whatever. I'm joking, not a trick on you, but whatever it may be. And they, instead of giving you the, 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 the $100 million that you know they have in the bank, they write a little riddle. And in order to get the $100 million inheritance, you need to solve the riddle. How fast, how quickly will you give up? $100 million? My grandfather was a very, very intelligent man. He was very, very smart. There's got to be an answer to the riddle. That riddle will be, presumably, all, I think, I think all sane people, that will be, that will become your life's mission. Your life's mission will be trying to figure out what in the world is the solution to this riddle. In fact, you find it all over America. We have we have a lot, a lot, tons of people who their whole life's mission is 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 treasure hunting because they believe in wherever the treasure may be, whether they are accurate or not, that the treasures actually exist. But let's assume that the treasure actually does exist, or in my case, the inheritance does exist. That becomes your life mission because it's so valuable and so important. You can't just throw it away. You can't just let it go. This is, it's something that, that 
that's just so important. You can't let it go. Now, let us make that exponentially greater. And let's talk about the entire universe. The entire universe around us. Every single intricate detail. You walk down the block and you see some grass growing and you see trees. And you see a little leaf falling down. And you see a little, oh, not a leaf, but there's little things that have seeds attached to them. And it falls into the ground. And there's little propellers on the seeds that make them travel a couple of feet so they don't just fall right down to where the, the roots of the old tree are sucking up all the nutrients. It falls a little bit further down so that it can draw nutrition from the earth. And you can see the apple. You cut open an apple and you see that each apple has little seeds in them. And you can and, and every tree has a a a a a a a uh a, say, a plan for um Continu con continuation, and every single um, item in this world has a has, has a has a cause and effect of what happens, and everything in this world is so much planning and so much intricate details going on. Our the way our heart beats and our lungs are are expanding and contracting every couple of seconds, and every single thing has so many intricate details. And then we look at ourselves and say, "What's the purpose of all this? Why why are we here?" Something happened. Someone must have done this for a reason. Someone must have created this for a reason. This is way more um, dramatic and way more intricate, way more um, expansive than any gift, any treasure that can be found in the world. This is the world itself, the whole universe. Look at the billions and trillions and trillions amount of stars out there in the world. Some came from somewhere. What does this all mean? Someone, someone put it here. And if someone put it here, what does he want from us? What does that thing, the, the being, the, the, the Hashem really, he was trying to say it generalized without talking about Hashem, but Hashem created the world. What does he want from us? What does he want from us? He's got to have some instructions. He didn't just create this whole world without instructions. So he, the answer is, he gave us the Torah. The Torah is the instruction book. Oh, but I don't know how to read the Torah. I don't understand the Torah. I wasn't, I didn't have the opportunity to get a Jewish education to, to, to have, or maybe I did get an opportunity to get a Jewish education, but it's not uh, on the, the level of, 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 of having a clarity and having complete understanding of the whole Torah. So what am I supposed to do? I don't have, well, let's go back to the idea of, of, the, of the treasure. If it was the inheritance, if it was the riddle, what do you do? Well, if it's your life's mission, you make it your business to do whatever it takes to make it work. Because, 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 how can you not? This is, this is, it's a riddle. It, it doesn't make any sense. I'm here in this tremendously beautiful, amazing, awesome, perfect world, and and there's got to be instructions. So it's my duty. It's my responsibility. It's my duty should be my life's mission to figure out what my purpose is here for. And if I don't know my purpose, it's my duty to go and, and ask and discuss and study Torah, what, which is what we're doing now, currently as we speak. But that's the idea of... Now, now, sorry. Now let's go back to the verses and we're going to read something fascinating inside. In Rashi's version of the of the of the of these verses, it's referring to the study of Torah. In the Ramban, by the way, he talks about this whole mitzvah 
as referring to the mitzvah of tshuva, of repentance, of coming back, coming closer to Hashem, which in essence is the same idea. I mean, you can really plug in and tie in the same um, example with the blender and the whole thing with tshuva. Tshuva is the same thing. It's I'm here for a purpose in this world, and I, I, it's my duty to come closer to Hashem. We can really just plug it in, but I'm going to say it in Rashi, because Rashi says something fascinating. It says, this mitzvah is not in Shemayim. It's not far away in the heavens. And it's not across the sea. Where is it? It's right here. What does Rashi say? So Rashi is the commentary on the bottom of the Chumash. In verse um, 12, um, um, Rashi says something fascinating. He quotes a Gemara, Talmud, and Erevin, page 55a. She'ilu haisa bashamayim. If the Torah was in heaven and was only accessible in the heavens and not accessible here, if the Torah was only accessible in the heavens and not here, a person's obligation would be to somehow figure out how to climb to the heavens to study the Torah. And the question is, what in the world is that supposed to mean? If it's something that's not possible to do, we can't. Even if you get take a spaceship and you fly as far as you can go, you won't bump into the Torah if it's in the heavens. So the answer is this exact idea. Rashi's not telling us you would literally have to travel to the heavens. Rashi's telling us, and if you don't have the instruction book, and if you don't have the Torah, you don't understand what's going on, it is your duty to do whatever it takes to find it. Not technically not to travel to the heavens, rather to, how you say, to spare no expense and to leave no stone unturned to try to figure out the truth. That's what Rashi Shine does. The same way, if it would be a hundred million dollar treasure, you would do whatever it takes, and either you will succeed or you will die trying to succeed, like the saying goes. The same thing with the Torah itself. We have to take our whole life and try to use our whole life as as our mission to try to do our most our utmost to get as close as we are to understanding. Whatever how close we can be. And when the Torah tells us it's not far away. It is close. The Torah is telling us that the start, like we said before with the Torah, the start of getting an understanding of who Hashem is and what He wants from us, that start is very close. We can all have a connection to the start, to connect. We may not get completely there. That part may be as far as, as that, as far as the heavens, maybe as far as across the sea. But to begin to comprehend and to begin to understand that is something we can all have a direct connection to. And it's our duty and it's our responsibility to, to, to do whatever it takes to get as much clarity as we can in what our purpose is in this world. That's the idea of, 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 of the, the Torah being far away yet close. And now we can technically tie it into this I spoke about last year for sure. You can technically tie it into tshuva, into repentance, which is the same idea. We Sometimes we look at our life, we look at the year and say, wow, really, I don't even know how to talk to Hashem, talk to Hashem and tell Him that I want to be better again. Kind of did the same thing last year. Didn't really change very much this year. 
you know, like I feel like a little bit like a like a fraud. And the answer is that sometimes we have to remember, we have to focus on the idea that Hashem wants us to try our best and Hashem wants us to be sincere. So what Hashem really wants from us is right now, before the days of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, to make a, a honest, sincere pledge to ourselves that we will try to be better. Now, if if things happen and the Itzahar nails us and we stumble and we fall, as long as we really had a genuine push, we really genuinely felt like we wanted to change, rephrase that. I'm talking about past tense. We really genuinely feel like we want to change, then Hashem accepts that as our as our as our tshuva. As long as the real, as long as the feeling is real. Now we may look at ourselves and say, "Well, I did the same thing last year, and I fell. I didn't make it two weeks before I was back to where I was, back to square one." Tell what Hashem is looking for. Hashem is looking for us to to, to right now have a genuine feeling of change. And the, the muscle, the example we give, I think I probably said this every year, is the example of a guy who is um, trying to catch a train from St. Louis to L.A. And he realizes after an hour into his trip that he's heading to New York. Somehow he ended up on the eastbound train instead of the westbound train. So if he was on one of Leslie's little guys, he wouldn't have made it out of Creef Corps after an hour. Maybe after, maybe Chesterfield. But if you're on a real train, you probably already uh, up to Indianapolis. Uh, or maybe, uh, depending on which route you go on, you probably all, right, you're, you're two hours out of the way because you have to go all the way back. So the easy part of Tshuva, the easy part is the first step. Before you get carried away, before you get all tshmattered and you get all confused and you get all discombobulated and, and what am I going to do? First step is you need to get off the train. On the next stop, you got to get off the train. That's the easy part. Now you have to make the trip back. That's going to take a long time to get back. But the first part is easy. The second part is hard. On your Hashem wants us to do is to get off the train. To say... I want to take that part of my life and I want to, that part of my life, I want to change directions. Changing directions is the easy part. To make the honest, to, to, to be honest with yourself, to make an honest um, conviction to myself that I'm going to try to be better. I'm going to take some steps to be more spiritual, to bring some more spirituality into my life. That's not easy. To keep that, I'm sorry, that's the easy part. To keep it going long term, that takes a lot of work. And Hashem promises us that if we do this, the first step ourselves, that He doesn't help us with. That we have to do all by ourselves. To take the plunge, to switch trains, it's easy. We don't have any help. That we have to do ourselves. But as soon as we get off the train, as soon as we go to the other side, Hashem says, once you're on the trip back, I'm holding your hand. I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to walk with you. That's the idea of, of either tshuva, or Torah, it's the same concept of trying to come closer to Hashem, trying to recognize our role in this world, and to understand that we're really here for a purpose, and try and do our utmost to understand and live our lives with that purpose. Okay.
in another couple of minutes. I'm just gonna. There's a lot of a lot of uh, stuff to talk about. It's in packed parsha, but I just want to, I guess, talk about the same, along the same, in the same vein, I guess, because it's coming up to Rosh Hashanah, and and like we said last week and we said two weeks ago, you don't have to dig very deep. Every single thing in all of these Torah portions, just they just jump at you all the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur tshuva themes. But I just want to talk about the, the flip side and try to um, bring out a very important point. The beginning of the parsha, um, Moshe tells the Jews, basically, that Hashem promises that you guys are never going to be wiped out. You guys are always going to be in the Jewish nation. You guys are always going to be um, you're always going to prevail. And don't worry. Don't worry. Don't worry. Everything's going to be good when you go to Eretz Yisrael. Everything's going to be good. Hashem's going to protect you. And Rashi explains what's going on. Rashi says that the 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 Fisha Shamu Yisrael Me'akos Chashidai. The Jewish people heard ninety-two um, curses or or um, admonitions, whatever English word you want to use for it. Okay, Hayriku Pneim. Their faces literally translated in English. Their faces turned green with fear. V'amru miyuchalamodelu. How is it possible for us to? Um, survive. Ninety-eight curses. If we right, you know you you try you towing the line. And if you go a little off, boom, right? How are we gonna How are we gonna live like this? So Moshe tells them, relax, don't worry, everything will be okay. Hashem's gonna protect you. Hashem's gonna make sure that you're okay. You never He's never gonna wipe you out. And he 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 gets them a little calm down. So the obvious question should jump out at us. Is well, what was the whole point of the curses? Wasn't the whole point of the curses to to get them all edgy and get them all nervous, right? You tell your children, you know, if you get out of your bed, I'm gonna give you a punishment. And your child gets a little nervous. Well, don't worry, the punishment is not gonna be that bad. So what's gonna happen? He's gonna get out of bed. He's not gonna. So right? You can all agree on that one. Didn't Moshe Rabbeinu mess the whole thing up? He messed the whole thing up. You have a bunch of kids who are being rowdy in class. And the teacher says, if you guys don't behave, I'm going to dock you guys all from the major trip, from graduation trip. Oh, everyone gets all nervous. Oh, and they can't learn. So he says, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'm not really going to do it. I just want you guys to behave a little bit. So they're, oh, he's not going to do it. He lost the whole thing. That doesn't work. So what's Moshe doing here? He's, he's messing the whole thing up. What is Moshe doing? Moshe is messing the whole thing up. The answer, this answer is one of the most fundamental um, um, ideas in Judaism. Um, it, it kind of, I guess, I wouldn't say sets it apart. It's not like black and white, but it's one of the things that if, if we're, we're Jewish, we can really um, use this as a tool 
to, to really bring us closer to Hashem. This is very, very important. It's a very, very nuanced um, idea. It was like this. There is something called fear, and then there is another level called hopelessness. Fear, or any other type of word that's similar idea, it can be used in the same context as, as, as guilt. When someone feels guilty, it's very different than feeling hopeless. When someone feels guilty and he looks at himself in the mirror and says, how could I have done such a terrible thing? Let's say a person crossed a red line in his, wherever he's holding in Judaism, looks at himself in the mirror and says, how could I ever have done that? How in the world did I lower myself to, to eat uh, on Yom Kippur? Or whatever it may be. If that thought process makes him feel hopeless, it makes him say, I'm worthless, therefore I'm worthless, therefore I'm nothing, then that thought is completely trafe. It's a completely negative thought and has no place in Judaism. To feel that a person's hopeless has no place. But if a person feels um, that so much fear, he can't even imagine ever being able to live a life because the curse is, what does he do? He throws in the towel. He says, I'm not going to make it anyways. I'm not going to make it anyways. God's going to blow me up to pieces anyways. Why even try? You know who thought this? Esau. Esau sold his his birthright to his brother Yaakov. You know why? Because he said, because he said, I'm going to die anyways. It's so complicated. It's so confusing. I'm going to get killed anyways. So why even try? And he gave it up. That's Asa. We don't do that. We are not allowed to do that. That type of thought is completely traced. But we can take the thoughts and the, and the, the feelings of fear and use it as a tool to connect to Hashem. We think about how terrible um, um, Gehenna will be in the next world, and we can use that as a tool, as a mechanism to to, to steer us clear from from sin, from averos. That's a very positive thing. But if it leads to hopelessness, then basically you end up throwing in the towel. And when we throw in the towel, the 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 there's no hope. There's no trying. Where there is hope there can be fear. Where a person has hope for a future, for the future, then there is a place for fear. When there is no hope, and you give up hope, then there's no place for fear, because the, the fear basically leads to hopelessness, and it leads to you giving up without trying. And this idea is talked about in many of the different svarim, um, and the 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 the, the Sorry, I'm blanking out. Slana Maraba. Um, I don't know why I forgot the name of the saver. I just blanked out. Um, well, famous saver, the Nisiva Shalom. There you go. The Nisiva Shalom, famous, famous uh, um, 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 saver, rhythm and Slana Maraba. He talks about this at great length. And it, it, the same thing with guilt. Someone who's, who's holding on a nice, comfortable level in spirituality, and he has a, a certain 
place where he falls and he stumbles, and then he makes him feel shameful. He feels so guilty. He feels, why, how can I even daven today or put on film today? Hashem, Hashem wants me to put, I feel so disgusting. That's not a Jewish thought. Hashem doesn't want you to feel that. That's coming from a place of hopelessness. When there's no hope, there, there's no thought process of negative thought process that can lead to growth. Any negative thought process that doesn't lead to growth is bad. It's chazer. It's treif. It's terrible. A thought process that's negative that leads to hope, that leads to, to growth, that's positive. So Moshe saw that the Jewish people, they were so blown away by the 98 curses, he realized that they lost hope. They gave up. And they were at a point that they weren't even going to try. Says Moshe to himself, this is not worth it. This is going to lead to nothing. And he's able, to, he's willing to sacrifice the, the at least the, the level of the severity of the fear of the curses in order to make sure to prevent this level of hopelessness. Because there's nothing worse than a person that's hopeless. Like we, we find this all in, in different uh, um, in different areas in life. Using a sports analogy, you have you have you have a, a, a concept in, in, in football called a hail mary, right? You, at the end of the game, the guy, the quarterback, chucks the, the, the football across the field, and I don't know, once every four or five uh, shots, maybe I'm, I'm making up the numbers. The, the receiver actually catches it and he gets a touchdown. So why? How come for the first three and a half quarters, no one ever throws hail marys? Why not? Because it's stupid. It doesn't make any sense. There's a 50% chance that the the opposing team is going to intercept it. Maybe even an 80% chance. They're going to intercept it. And they're going to get a touchdown the other way. So why do you do it in the last minute? It's because in the first three quarters, the the coach and the quarterback, there's a, there's a very, very clear path where you can see a foreseeable way of winning the game. You never gave up hope. So you don't gamble when there's hope. You don't gamble away the game when there's hope. But in the last minute, and you're down by, by two touchdowns and there's no way to get it, so you're willing to gamble. Why are you willing to gamble? Because there's no hope. There's no hope of winning the game. So you take a gamble. And if you happen to luck out, you're lucked out. That is something that, that, that comes when there's no hope. When there's no hope, you're willing to take risks that are not um, um, within the realm of, of normal... Um, um, normal um, normalcy. So the point, this last one we're trying to bring out is that we always have to remember that if we come into Rosh Hashanah and we come to Yom Kippur, we feel hopeless. That's not a good thing. That's always a bad thing. We have to come into Rosh Hashanah, come to Yom Kippur, feeling positive, feeling that there's something we can do, something we can do to bring ourselves closer to Hashem, and Hashem will accept our our, our repentance. Hashem will accept it. Hashem will want us to come closer. And like we always say over, there's nothing that Hashem, who's our Father in Heaven, there's nothing that Hashem wants more than us coming closer. And even if it's not 100% perfect, even if we just push ourselves to do a little bit more, become a little bit better, and just put our sincere um, foot forward, then Hashem, as just Hashem, Hashem will give us and bless us with a new year full of parnasa, full of health, full of happiness, full of nachas. Have a wonderful, amazing Shabbos, everyone.
Amen. Thank 